all our struggles tend to suggest to us, I'm alone, nobody can understand this, nobody can relate to this. And that's simply not true. Friends, welcome to the Hope and Help Project, the podcast that cultivates compassionate biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. I'm your host, Christine Chapel, and I'm grateful you're here to join in on today's conversation with pastor and author Dave Dunham. Today we're going to be talking about self-harm. We'll discuss the heart of addictive behaviors, common misconceptions about root causes, having realistic goals for recovery, and how the gospel invites strugglers to experience freedom and change through Jesus Christ. If this is your first time listening to the show, be sure to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. The link is posted in the show description, and by visiting that page, you can learn all about the mission of the podcast, as well as view links to other interviews we've produced. All right, let's get started. As I mentioned, my guest today is pastor and author Dave Dunham. Dave is the pastor of counseling and discipleship at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Roseville, Michigan. He is the author of Addictive Habits, Changing for Good, and writes and speaks about counseling and addiction ministry. Welcome to the show, Dave. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Christine. Can you tell us a little bit about your heart for ministry when it comes to helping people who struggle with addictive habits? How did that get started? Yeah, well, it was kind of a... Uh, well, it wasn't really part of my plan, which tends to be the way God works, isn't it? Uh, I think as a seminary student, I pretty much thought I was going to just preach really amazing sermons and everybody was going to be transformed. And, uh, uh, you know, so I, I left seminary just a little early in order to get into church experience. And uh, it wasn't long before I got into experience and uh, got to see what counseling um, looked like and how that played out. And uh, had the privilege of serving under a pastor who had about 30 years of counseling experience. And so he said, you're going to sit in on cases with me and you're going to observe. And uh, I just saw this is where where shepherding was happening. This is where transformation was happening. And uh, just so happened that uh, as we continued in ministry, God put me into a, a church plant situation. And uh, we were helping a, a church in a small rural southern Ohio town that was predominantly made up of men and women from drug and alcohol rehab. And so our church was about 70% at one time, men and women from, from rehab. And so I, I just kind of got thrown into the deep end and uh, had to figure out how to care for people that I, I had not really had a lot of exposure to in, in my upbringing. So it was uh, uh, the season of, of the ministry of I don't know, as in I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and God just uh, led me to people who could equip us along the way. I could definitely relate to the season of I don't know <laughs> what I'm doing. I am often uh, find myself in that tension as well. But um, uh, good, good things still seem to come by God's grace yes. uh, in spite of it, I suppose. <laughs> Well, and it's a it's a great time to be involved in biblical counseling because the movement is just expanding with resources and um, insights and, uh, you know, individuals who have particular skills and approaches that offer us all kinds of opportunities to get equipped in areas that we would never have thought we would be counseling in or helping in in the past. 
Absolutely. I, I, I've enjoyed um, getting involved in biblical counseling thus far and just even in my own life um, being able mm. to apply the things I've learned yes. has been a big blessing to me. One of the things I've personally struggled with in the past is the behavior of cutting. It's something that's very prevalent, unfortunately, but it's it's not beyond the gospel's reach. And in the book that you published with PNR, at the very beginning, you strike at the heart of what I would say cutting is an addictive mm-hmm. habit or behavior, even any kind of self-harm, really. Sure. Um, but you go into the book and you're, you share and identify how addictive behaviors such as self-harm or cutting never really stay at the level of behavior, that there's something deeply rooted in our sense of identity, you know, that is being expressed mm-hmm. through this addictive behavior. Can you expand on that a bit for the listeners? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... fundamentally, the longer you struggle with something, the more you feel like it becomes intertwined with who you are. So I think, you know, a a sort of an occasional failure or an occasional challenge or an occasional temptation of a particular kind, it doesn't carry a lot of weight. But one that is just constant feels like it really does just own us that it's that it's deep inside us, it feels part of us. And so I think the longer you struggle, the more you get that confusion about who you are. And I think addictive habits uh, impact our sense of identity in a couple of specific ways. Primarily, I think in order to develop an addictive habit, there has to be a lot of consistency. And so that usually means that I'm going to have to let go of other things that were important in my life, things that helped shape my sense of self, dreams and relationships, even moral convictions. And so as those kind of get pushed to the periphery and I've got to pour all this energy into this hat and this this addictive behavior, that, that's how it starts to develop into uh, the, that bondage. And so the, the more I'm pouring into that and the less I'm giving to these other things, the more my sense of identity is directly impacted. And then I think secondly, you know, related to that is because we're often defined in terms of relationship to other people in order to develop an addictive habit, I've got to push people away. Otherwise, my secrets will be exposed, my behaviors will be found out. Uh, And so my relationships become something that I fear. And so I distance myself from them. And again, when when I have nothing but my addictive behavior to identify with, then that's what tends to define me. I think that frequently self-harm, cutting, addictive habits, those who aren't familiar or haven't experienced them can tend to not really understand how do I approach this? How do I help someone who is struggling, you know, in this way? And, you know, frequently, especially with, with cutting where the, the fruit is so visible, the attention gets fixed on the most obvious fruit, which is the injury. It's the, right. the, the bloody scrape or it's the picking, what, whatever it is, that's what we tend to see and want to put our focus on. How do I stop this person from doing this? You know, and I've heard and seen people give advice to those who are self-injurers that they should, you know, redirect their urges to harm themselves or even um, use a replacement method. So when I feel like I need to self-harm, I will flick a rubber band on my wrist instead, you know, something less visually disturbing, less physically destructive, but still, you know, hurting yourself to some degree. (laughs) Would you explain how these attempts at behavior modification are misguided and perhaps even harmful to the person who struggles in this way? What should we really be concerned about or focusing our attention on? Yeah, I mean, obviously the behavior is problematic 
And I think, you know, there, there are some who will suggest you've got to deal with the root issue and not the behavior. Otherwise, you know, if you, you deal with the root issue first and then the behavior goes away. And, and I don't think that's true. I think you've got to deal with both at the same time. But I, I would say the, the coping mechanism of some less destructive means, the, the flicking of the rubber band is probably the most well-known. It, it actually just feeds the problematic thinking and the sinful desire that lies underneath the surface or, or at the root of the issue. So we're perpetuating the wrong kind of thinking not really moving towards recovery. We're just trying to be less destructive. And I think the, the problem, too, is it, this suggestion doesn't recognize our propensity towards behavioral tolerance. So the longer you engage in a behavior, the less likely it is that it's going to provide the same amount of emotional relief. So we develop tolerance to certain practices. And in order to get the same emotional benefit, I usually have to increase the severity of the behavior. So the Flicking of the rubber band may work for a little while, but it doesn't prove long term to provide the same emotional relief that I thought it was going to or that it did in the beginning. And so I have to up the ante. I have to do something of greater risk in order to get greater reward. So mild forms of self-harm, just they don't endure. They don't deal with the real root issues, and they tend to just feed the problematic thinking uh, that lies at the heart of self-harm. So ultimately, I think you, you've got to deal with the, the root issues, the desires, the motives, and then figure out in what ways does God meet those desires and those needs in my life and pursue those in more healthy directions. I wrote an article for Desiring God on the topic of cutting, and one of the things that I mentioned in that article um, was just that bloodlust. It's just that, you know, the yeah. bloodlust of self-harm is always going to continue to demand more and deeper. Yeah. You know, it's always going to want to have more, um, and you're Absolutely. never going to satisfy its thirst. And that's where really the, the you know, the, the counselors will talk about the risk of more serious injury or even accidental death goes way up because, because of this factor of tolerance. We're always, you know, trying to get a little bit more of the emotional relief next time. And, uh, you know, what worked the previous times isn't working now, so I've got to go, I've got to cut deeper, or I've got to punch harder, or I've got to burn more. Or, And the, the goal is always to get that same level of emotional relief, and it's causing me to take more drastic steps to get there. So there is there is a real uh, potential for accidental death. So self-harm is not suicide, but we can see suicide as a result because of an accidental, accidentally going farther than was intended. In your book, you recognize, you know, how terribly vicious the war is against our addictive habit. You say that we may find ourselves as Christians hating our habit and also loving it at the same time. Can you talk about the concept of both loving and hating our addictive habits? Because some some listening today may have never heard that yeah. taught before. Why is this true? of our addictions and what hope do we have that this can actually change? Yeah, I mean, I, that's a great question because I think it, it, it hits on something that is frequently overlooked as it relates to addictive habits. And that is we engage in the behavior because it works. It does something for us. Um, it's accomplishing something. We have some need, some desire that this behavior is helping us to, at least in our mind, meet to achieve. And, and we need to be honest about that because when we when we are saying, I want to quit my addictive habit, we have to be willing to recognize I'm going to give up something that has served a purpose in my life. 
there's there's a sense of loss that I need to feel as I prepare for this. Otherwise, it's it's naive. I'm going in with a sort of uh, blinders, and when the desires don't change, or the need is still there, or the want is still there, then I get frustrated and discouraged and feel sort of hopeless. So I think being honest about the fact that that this this behavior serves some purpose in my life, and therefore I, I do have this sort of love for it, this appreciation for it, this even, I think, need for it. Um, I do hate it. I hate the consequences that come with it. I hate the feelings of guilt and shame and loss, and I hate the obsession, the disruption it brings to my life. Um, but, you know, the Bible is very sensitive to this dynamic, dynamic too, because Paul talks about it in uh, Romans 7. I do the very thing I hate. Um, so the Bible understands the tension of love and hate with our sin. But even there in Romans 7, Paul says, you know, the good news is, you know, who can free us from this body of sin? Well, well thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we, we know that God can rescue us even from these sorts of tensions of sometimes I love and sometimes I hate my sin. Absolutely. And I think that is a powerful truth that you just mentioned, that God will help us. He is able to help us. And we are able to experience, you know, freedom in these areas. But I think for many who struggle with the addiction um, or addictive behavior or self-harm, and they've struggled and felt enslaved for a really long time, they can feel like this practice is an uncontrollable craving. You know, so help us to understand the heart of this kind of urge as a means of coping with overwhelming pains. How might we begin to respond to these intense cravings in a different, more God-honoring fashion? Well, I, I think, you know, the, the cravings arise from a, a bunch of different sources. So on the one hand, there are, there are physiological things going on. There's certainly some psychological things going on in terms of I convince myself and I, I have this need and... And there are spiritual factors going on. I think understanding perhaps some of the the rationales for why I, I feel the urges, why they come the way they do. Um, so again, going back to those issues of motive and trying to assess, you know, what is the reason that I feel like I need this? What is the reason I got into this? What is the reason uh, that I've continued in this? I think the, probably the two most common issues at the, the heart of, of self-harm or, or behind the urges are emotional relief and emotional control. So I cut in order to respond to the intensity of my emotions. They're overwhelming. I feel like they, I've got to make these emotions stop. I feel like I'm going crazy. And so I feel forced to do something drastic to find relief. And so I use, you know, uh, whatever form of self-harm, burning, plucking, hitting, I use that as maybe a form of distraction to divert my attention away from the emotional pain. Maybe it's a form of expression. I'm trying to, to say this is how much I hurt. Maybe it's the relief of tension, all the buildup of all my emotions, just trying to find some place to escape. Or maybe it's just that feeling of control. I can decide when I hurt, how much I hurt, where I experience the hurt. And so we, we look at those urges and we're trying to identify in our own life what are some of the reasons that I do what I do? Uh, and as we explore that, then we have the opportunity again to take that to the Lord and say, this is the, the need I think I have. What can you help me with in this regard? How can you meet that need in more concrete fashion and a more godly fashion? Yeah, and I love the way that you described what self-harm really, you know, the, the substance of it. When I, when I am asked, I usually explain it as uh, a balloon, you know, so think of a balloon, you're blowing in this air and it's, it's this mm -hmm. emotional 
chaos and the fuller the balloon gets the more emotional chaos it's filled with and it yeah. gets to a point where you're either gonna let the air out or the balloon is gonna explode and so you yeah. make a little slice into the balloon and the pressure starts to slowly let go and you experience that relief of that tension dissipating and that's how I've been able to communicate yeah. it to people who really just you know something like this where you're intentionally hurting yourself you know to many people it makes absolutely no sense right and so they say why would you do that just stop <laughs> just right. stop doing right. that it seems like a simple answer but unfortunately <laughs> it, it's it's not that simple change requires what i have learned from heath lambert something called moral effort with divine enablement i love the term i don't know if he put it together or if it came from somewhere else but that term divine enablement so the concept that there's work on our part but there's also work on the holy spirit and yeah. and you talk about this in your book as well how can understanding this provide hope and encouragement for someone who is upset that they cannot fix themselves as quickly as they want yeah well i mean at the one level i mean the the encouragement we we want to take is that god is God is always at work. So, you know, Paul tells us in Philippians that he who began a good work will see it through to the day of completion. So there is a, a promise from God that he's going to continue to work. And the fact that it's not always at our pace is actually, I think, part of God's design. So on the one hand, I think we can recognize that there are layers of complexity to problems and to change. So there are emotional issues, motivation issues, spiritual issues, habits and physiology and all these things. And so no change comes overnight. So even Paul can say we're changed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. So it's always going to happen in those degrees. But I think I think one of the ways that God works change is through the long drawn out process. So a, a quick and easy fix doesn't actually help us as much as the slow plotting obedience does. And I think of Romans 5, 3 through 5, where Paul talks about we rejoice in suffering because suffering produces endurance and character and even hope. And so the, the difficulty of change is actually part of God's design to help us grow. It's part of his design to help us truly be transformed uh, and not just um, – sort of avoid this bad behavior for this season of life. So I think if you're if you're feeling like you're frustrated that things don't happen quickly, that I can't just stop this, that I can't just get this under control, I think I would in, want to encourage someone to see the, the struggle of change as part of God's design to help you grow in endurance and character and even hope. And so the more time you spend with him and remembering how dependent you are on him for all of this, I think the more spiritually healthy you'll actually be as you continue to fight. Well, those are really great words of encouragement. As I, as you were talking, it just made me really think about, you know, how culture um, would instruct us about making changes and that it seems like, you know, if there's something broken in you, you can fix it. Just buy this program or take this pill or do this, you know, top 10 strategy list and then give it two weeks and, you know, and then right. it's done and set it and forget it and you'll be ready to go. And that's just the idea of, right. you know, progressive sanctification or the process that you were talking about of just, you know, the process being part of the the sanctifying work, not just yeah. the end product, but actually the the constant need to walk in obedience, to trust God for for change, to try to, you know, make 
good choices and then to repent when you don't. And just that back and forth is yeah. is the biblical model. And it's opposite of what culture would say is the right way or the, the tangible way for real relief. Right. And you hit an interesting point there, too. I think, you know, the culture's strategy for problem solving tends to be one of two extremes. So either there is the, look, you can just fix this. It's an easy fix. Just do steps one, two, and three, and it's all better. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you know, there's not really anything you can do. It's genetics, it's biology, it's biochemistry. You're just kind of, you have this disease. There's just nothing you can do to fix the problem. And so they take pieces of the picture and they reduce everything to one pick, one piece of the puzzle instead of the whole. Whereas a, a holistic biblical approach says, look, there, there's there's a both and here. There is a, yes, you you can't change on your own. And there is a, yes, but you can change because God is changing you. And so there's a both and piece there that that uh, a reductionist picture will ignore one or the other. The biblical picture wants to take both and. Uh, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you. That's a real great reminder. I, I thank you for, for putting that in there. I think that's just so valuable. Um, and it leads well into our next question. I want to ask you, you know, what practical steps can someone take for addressing the spiritual components of their uh, recovery from self-harm or addictive habits? And then would you also address a few of, you know, the practical steps for addressing physical components? Yeah. So, I mean, this is uh, obviously what all of counseling is doing. So uh, trying to boil it down is is difficult. But, but we can talk about a, a few things that I think would absolutely be helpful. I think, again, to beat the same drum, probably the biggest thing you want to do is understand your motivations. And so I, I'll often have counselees keep a journal a log of the times when they're tempted. So when an urge strikes, you want to think in terms of these three ish, these three questions. What am I doing? What am I thinking? What am I wanting? And so I'll have somebody fill out a journal entry for as many times as they can related to points of temptation or urges or times when they fail. And the goal is just to try and identify any common patterns. So do I get urges at the same time every day or the same place or after the same event? Or are there certain associations, memories, fears, other triggers that sort of prompt this temptation? So the journaling is just trying to identify patterns so that I can more accurately understand myself and the motives that are working in me. And then I think ultimately the goal is to be able to bring those motivations to God and seek how he might be able to answer those. But perhaps some other spiritual things, and, and one thing that I think um, probably doesn't get talked a, a lot about is I, I think repentance is a valuable piece of work. Self-harm is sin, and I, I want to say that with a tremendous amount of compassion and understanding. You know, I think many people would say, I I, I feel like I would quit today if I could. I'm, I'm trapped. I'm stuck. Uh, and I, I have no reason to disbelieve them. I think the Bible gives us a, a robust picture of sin that says we both sin and we become enslaved to sin. So Jesus says in John 8 that everyone who sins becomes a slave to sin. So you, you do feel trapped. You do feel like I'm stuck. And yet the behavior you're engaging in is still sinful. And so at whatever level I can, I want to take responsibility for my behavior. If I say, look, only 10% of this is still my fault. Well, I want to own that 10% 100% of the way. And I want to take that to God and, and, and repent and confess and seek his forgiveness for that behavior. I think there's a, a freedom that comes as we pursue God in that way. 
Uh, lots of other spiritual disciplines. I think the thing I use the most is probably helping people study the attributes of God. So if I use self-harm as control, there's nothing like studying the sovereignty and compassion of God, um, understanding that he's in control and he's in control in ways that express love and compassion and grace to me. I think listing the lies that I'm tempted to believe and then identifying biblical truths that might combat that, I think those are helpful spiritual tools as well. Probably the most helpful things are developing some avoidance strategies, so identifying what the the common triggers and objects are in my life and finding ways to kind of distance myself from those. So if there are objects that I regularly use to harm myself, getting those out of my house or getting them locked up so that they can't be easily accessed. Um, This doesn't stop the behavior, but it's something that can help me build a little bit of momentum in the process. And then I think because self-harm is often utilized as a means of emotional regulation, I think we want to try to find some stabilizing exercises. So I use things, um, I don't know what the proper terminology perhaps is, but I call them anchors. They're just a means to try and ground me in the moment when my emotions want to take me spiraling off into distance. So uh, we utilize the five senses, so sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch, and you select anchors that correspond to that. So an example, um, oh, I had a counselee who used to carry a dice in his pocket, and when his emotions would get um, heightened, he'd stick his hand in his pocket, and he would try to count the the side of the dice he was on. So this is side five, and he would flip it over, and this would be side three. And the idea was to engage his mind and his body enough to just kind of interrupt the spiraling cycle of anxious thoughts so that he could then redirect his thoughts to more godly things. So trying to find some different things that we could use as as interrupters, as anchors, whatever terminology you want to use. The anchors aren't saviors. They're just a way to try to interrupt a spiral before it gets too far out of hand so that we can redirect our thoughts to uh, what is true and lovely and honorable and excellent and worthy of praise. Those are really great suggestions. I've never heard of the dice one before. You know, you just shared a bunch of uh, spiritual helps and some physical helps for struggling with self-harm. And I know how important personally community is with this type of a struggle. We know everything that we've talked about so far on this episode. If somebody takes all of these, you know, these great biblical helps and tries to put them into practice on their own, it's going to be really challenging. But the problem is is that self-harm, like you mentioned earlier in the discussion, you know, it comes with oftentimes a heavy element of shame and many strugglers suffer in silence and they don't actively seek help because there's guilt and and they want to hide and be isolated because of their problem. Can you talk about the importance of the body of Christ in the struggler's recovery and what can loved ones do to be helpful and not hurtful as they walk alongside someone who is battling against these temptations? Yeah, well, I mean, the there is no other resource outside of the gospel itself that I think the church can offer except itself, the, the church. I mean, I think it's the most valuable tool that we can we can say, look, we we do this. You know, there are lots of counselors who are very effective at talking about things like anchor, anchors and emotional regulation and these kinds of things. But the church's biggest benefit is that it's the church, it's the body of Christ. Um, I think of um, I think it's Tim Lane and Paul Tripp in their book uh, How People Change. They talk about change is a community project. So change doesn't usually happen in isolation. 
because in reality, we can talk ourselves into anything. So my own self-talk usually vacillates between sort of destructive, condemning talk, or on the other end, uh, justifying and excusing. So what I need is I need another voice who's going to help me to see things clearly, who's going to talk to me about what the scriptures actually say, who's going to help me even when my, my filters are skewed and I'm, I'm even twisting scripture or I'm twisting experiences or I'm looking at things in sort of extremes, who are going to be a voice of, of calm, reason, and compassion to help me see things a little more clearly. You know, and, and Galatians 6 talks about bearing one another's burdens. And so there's this sense in which while the the change itself is not something that someone can do for me, having somebody in the midst of the struggle does help to lighten the load a little bit. So when I think about what the church can do, gosh, I think probably the most important thing the church can do is recover that robust theology of sin. I think we have a tendency in the church, especially the the conservative um, Orthodox church, to think in terms of personal responsibility, which is right. The, the, the Bible talks about you know, um, our, our decisions to sin, our, our choice to commit sinful behavior. But I think we can often lack compassion and sensitivity to those who are struggling with addictive behaviors because we miss that enslavement piece that Jesus talks about or that Paul talks about. So we have a sort of you made the mess kind of mentality. And of course, this is what you're going to get. And you just need to stop, as you had mentioned earlier. So we have that kind of mentality. And I think one of the things we want to do is we want to engender a great deal of compassion and understanding for people saying change is hard. Um, and while we don't absolve one another of responsibility, we want to be compassionate for the ways in which change is complicated by all these varying layers of difficulty. I think Galatians 6 says, if anyone is caught in any transgression. So there's that sense, again, of just having an understanding that so someone is caught. They, they are trapped. They're enslaved. So having a robust theology will help us to be a bit more compassionate, a bit more sensitive, not to, to minimize personal responsibility, but to show grace, extend grace, to grieve with people as they find themselves just struggling in bondage to sin. Practically, I think the best thing they can do is ask good questions. Um, we ask generic questions like, how are things going? And, you know, are you doing okay? But I think really pointed questions to engage people where they are uh, would be more helpful Questions like, what's the most dominant message in your self-talk? Or how's God been working in your life this week? Or what emotions have been overwhelming to you lately? Or when was the last time that you harmed yourself? So I think engaging people with those kinds of specific questions and those, no, lets me know how to care for them really well, um, meet them where they are. And I think to build on that also, we talked earlier about really having a broad view or a longer view of the, you know, the recovery process. What yeah. does recovery look like for someone who has been struggling with self-harm for maybe even years? Yeah. Success okay. says, okay, they used to do this every week. It's been a couple months. Great. They made a couple yeah. months. <laughs> that's, 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 right. that's change. That's change in the right direction. And so celebrating those small successes, this is going to be yeah. up and down. And, and in all honesty, recovery looks like successes and failures, regardless of what you're struggling with. If you're trying to make a change somewhere, you're going to have days where you do really well. And then you're going to have days where you bomb and it's not going so yeah. well for you. Perhaps that's all in the same day. And we would love, you know, to think that training ourselves to respond differently to life's challenges would be a walk in the park, but it's usually more like a walk in the muck instead. So what, what should strugglers do 
to prepare themselves for meeting those temptations and failures in in the healing process? How can they respond to their disappointments in a way that does not spiral them into a cycle of self-loathing or hopelessness? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think you hit on a really good thing there in terms of um, you know, a lot of this has to do with the way we interpret those experiences. So not having the long, long picture of change, not having a clear view of progressive sanctification. So I think one of the things I would want people to do is to evaluate the kinds of filters that they use or the interpretive lenses that they're using to think about their experiences and about themselves. So I think one one example would be a lot of people who struggle with self-harm tend to have an extreme all or nothing kind of filter. And so the reasoning tends to go, either I'm all the way better or I will never change. Or either I have no temptation or I'm right back to square one in my recovery. I'm starting all the way over. And so I think recognizing those filters, being able to identify when I'm, I'm skewing my thinking here, when I'm not being realistic, when I'm, I'm using an all or nothing kind of filter, allows me to be able to sort of tailor a plane of attack directly for that, challenge those thoughts come back at them with biblical truth that talks about the progressive nature of sanctification. So, and, and I think, you know, having that awareness that we're transformed by degree from one degree of glory to another, all of this just takes time. And that time is sometimes God's design to make our growth more meaningful, to give endurance and character and hope. So I, I think trying to help ourselves evaluate our thinking and our interpretive lenses and reminding ourselves that change is a, is a process. It, it takes time. And the layers of complexity mean we're going to have to work through lots of different things along the way. I can really resonate with what you said there. Um, that was really, really encouraging to hear. I, we're just about out of time for today. And so I want to go ahead and invite you to close out the show by speaking directly to the listener. There may be someone listening to this episode who currently suffers in the ways we've been talking about. Maybe they have struggled with self-harm or an addictive behavior for a long time and they feel like they just cannot get unstuck from the habit. Maybe they are ashamed about their problem and afraid to seek support or perhaps they're even questioning whether or not God can really help them with something so challenging. What would you say to that person today to give them hope and courage to take their next steps towards Jesus for freedom and change? Yeah, what a great question. Uh, yeah, maybe two things come to mind, um, and I, I hope these will be some meaningful responses. I think the first thing I would want to say is to echo Paul's words that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. So I think all our struggles tend to suggest to us, I'm alone, nobody can understand this, nobody can relate to this. And that's simply not true. Uh, there are people out there who understand your feelings of shame, your feelings of disappointment with yourself, fear, bondage. They understand even the specific urges that you have. And so we're tempted to believe that nobody can help us, but, but I want to encourage you that the right people, even if they haven't experienced self-harm, the right people can be sympathetic, they can uh, be compassionate, they can be understanding, and they can walk with you through uh, a season of transformation. And then maybe in conjunction that, with that, I would say that God loves 
broken and hurting people. The scriptures are replete with verses where it talks about him, you know, binding the wounds or refusing to snap a, a, a broken reed and, and kind of just break that apart or to snuff out a, a, a smoldering wick. I mean, he's very compassionate for those who are struggling. And his compassion is so big that even when uh, we are enslaved to sinful patterns, he continues to care for us and invites us to come. So I think of the way First John uh, 4.18 speaks, and it says, there's no fear in love, uh, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. So in other words, we may fear coming to God, we may fear confessing to God because we're afraid of condemnation or judgment, but if we're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. We do not have to fear God's judgment because in his tremendous love, he has sent Jesus to die for every one of our sins, even the sins of self-harm. So I would say you have every reason to come to Christ because he has love for you, compassion, and grace, even in the bondage of struggling. And maybe the, the first step to take in all of this, the sort of act of faith, is to find a trusted friend or pastor or parent or counselor or whoever who you can begin to ask for help. Well, really, really wise words um, there, Dave. Thank you so much for sharing those words and also all the wisdom that we, you know, got to hear from you today. I'm just so thankful. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart because in the past I struggled in these ways and I know people who, who struggle quite intensely in these ways as well. And so I'm just so thankful you've taken the time. Would you do me a favor? Uh, I know that the audience is going to want to get connected with you, would you share where they can find you online? How can they get connected to, to stay uh, abreast of your ministry? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to do that. It's so kind of you to ask. I mean, there are way better resources out there than anything I'm doing. Um, I would I would point you to, you know, CCEF and ACBC and those kinds of organizations. But uh, uh, I'm happy to share. My, my website is pastordaveonline.org. Uh, so pretty straightforward. Uh, I write pretty frequently there. I've written some articles as well for the Biblical Counseling Coalition, which is a, a wonderful organization. Uh, I'd much rather you avail yourself of those resources than, than mine. But uh, uh, thank you for, for asking. Well, uh, we will make sure to include links to uh, your website and some of the articles you've written in the past. And I would just put a plug in there for you to the audience that you were very humble in that response, but your articles are fantastic. And I would love my audience to go read them. <laughs> That's kind. Very kind of you. <laughs> well, very good. Thank you so much for being here with us today, thank Pastor Dave. It was a great conversation. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting my website, faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. You can check out the show notes from today's episode, complete with links to Dave's book and website. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you left a review for the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe to be notified when new episodes release. And please don't keep the Hope and Help Project a secret. If you know someone who could benefit from listening to today's episode, please share it with them. Lastly, if you're looking for gospel-centered hope and help, go to faithfulsparrow.com forward slash email, and you can learn about the biblical counseling resources I share on a weekly basis. From videos, audios, articles, and recommended reading, these emails are designed to equip you to discover gospel hope and help in your own life. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help Project. 